0: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Falkaran. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Ayan Maharaj from the Vivekananda University on a, uh, a massive, exciting new publication on Vedanta, the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta, just out this year. ayan welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So, how was this project conceived? Like, how did you put together this, this line of contributors and, and, and w- really what was the impetus of creating this handbook?
1: Yeah, so um, in 2017, I attended a philosophy conference, the yeah. American Philosophical Association conference in Seattle, Washington. And there's a big room there where different publishers come to speak to potential authors. Um, so, I was walking around and I had this idea for an edited volume actually on something somewhat different. It was, my idea was, it would have been called something like Beyond neo Vedanta. And the idea was actually quite different um, because one of my main research interests was modern Vedantins like Swami Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo and Sri Ramakrishna. I had this idea that um, I would edit a volume which would sort of introduce a new scholarly paradigm for thinking about these, modern Vedantic thinkers, and um, in polemical opposition to one of the dominant scholarly approaches to these thinkers, which is called the Neo-Vedantic paradigm, or Neo-Hindu paradigm, um, popularized by a famous German Indologist named Paul Hacker, and then developed by a number of his followers, uh, which is committed to certain uh, presuppositions which I think are problematic. So it was a much narrower kind of scholarly project, and I approached the uh, commissioning editor in philosophy at Bloomsbury with this idea. Uh, her name is Colleen Cowalter. She's a wonderful person and a wonderful editor. And when she heard the idea, she was excited about it, but she said, you know what, what would be even more uh, valuable, I think, for the scholarly community would be if you first just edited a volume on Vedanta in general, and then you can do a second book project on, a, on this kind of. Uh, narrower scholarly project. But, and that was the first, she put the idea into my head actually. So I have to credit her with giving me that idea. And then I thought about it more and I thought that was really a great idea. And there were a few reasons for that. But one of the main reasons why I thought that um, we need, the scholarly community needed a full handbook on Vedanta is that what you'll find is in scholarship on Vedanta, 90, at least um, up to let's say the year 2000, maybe. 95 to 98 percent of the scholarship was actually on Advaita Vedanta, one particular tradition of Vedanta at the expense of all of the other, most of the other philosophical traditions within Vedanta. So, Vishisita Advaita Vedanta, Madhva Vedanta, Achinta Veda Veda Vedanta, uh, many other traditions, Shutta Advaita Vedanta. And I felt that there was a real need uh, in scholarship for a handbook that actually addresses the whole range of philosophical traditions within the Vedantic School of Philosophy. Um, and the it, project grew from there,
0: yeah. Yeah, um, I currently have the pleasure of uh, teaching um, continuing studies learners at uh, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And one of the courses that I, I, I tutor is um, a course called Hindu Philosophy, and it looks at funk and Vedanta, mm-hmm. um, particularly Advaita Dvaita and Vishikta Advaita. For the Vedanta component, but there certainly is no shortage of interest in Vedanta. <laughs> yeah, um, no shortage of interest. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating discussions. And I'll certainly point students to this uh, phenomenal uh, new resource. Thank you. Now now that you talk about some of the, the strands of Vedanta and the need for highlighting some, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the layer of the book or the or the sections that the book is divided into?
1: Sure. So um, Let me, um, one way of of answering that question is is to start slightly indirectly. Um, Let me put it this. So to me, there are four unique features of this handbook. Um, And each of these features relates to how I structured the handbook. That's why you'll see the relevance to answer your question. So the first unique feature is that instead of just focusing on one particular tradition within Vedanta, it tries to take a more comprehensive approach and to cover you know, Advaita uh, Vedanta, but alongside that, Vishta Advaita Vedanta, Madhu Vedanta, Shuta Advaita Vedanta, Ajita Vedanta Vedanta, Nimbarkas, a different school of heda Vedanta, and so the whole range. Um, so that's one of the ways, so um, you'll find that, so the part one, it, it's divided into five sections. In part one is called Classical Vedanta. And in that section, there are four chapters, and there's one chapter, Devoted to a particular philosophical tradition within Vedanta. So, Neil Dalal's article is on uh, the concept of Nididhyasana in Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. Chapter two is written by a German scholar uh, named Maka Shmuka, and he's written on the concept of um, soul and knowledge in the Vishtadvaita tradition, so Ramanuj's tradition, but actually focusing on a later uh, thinker within the Vishtadvaita tradition, Venkatanatha. The third chapter is on Mato Vedanta, um, written by Michael Williams. And the fourth one, written by Ravi Gupta, is on Achintya Veda Vedanta, which is a tradition grounded in Chaitanya's teachings, the great avatar of, of the um, So that, the first four chapters should give a sense to any reader of kind of how, how broad the scope of the handbook is. But um, the second part of the handbook is called Modern Vedanta. So there's a shift from... What I call classical Vedanta to modern Vedanta. And the chapter, so chapter five is by Jeffrey Long, and he's written on Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy of, of Anekanta Vedanta. Stephen Phillips then writes on Sri Aurobindo's concept of the psychic being and his arguments in favor of reincarnation. Um, and I contributed a chapter on um, Romain Roulon. He had a very interesting epistolary debate with Sigmund Freud about mystical experience. And in the course of that debate, he appealed to the mystical experiences of Swami Vekananda and Sri Ramakrishna. And it's quite interesting, almost nobody knows about that debate. But in any case, the logic behind part one being on these kind of earlier um, thinkers within Vedantic traditions, classical Vedantins, and the the second part on modern Vedanta is that, this brings me to the second main feature of the book, which is that I'm I'm not treating Vedanta as a kind of static tradition, but as a continually evolving and dynamic tradition. And so I wanted to register that even structurally by looking at, you know, how, for instance, Shankara might have been, you know, the, one of the most outstanding codifiers in early exponents of Advaita Vedanta. But the tradition didn't end with him and it evolved significantly after him. And so there are also uh, other chapters in the handbook that discuss later Advaita. So Ethan Mills in part five discusses Srihasha's Hasha's Kandana Kandana He was an Advaitan um, in... The medieval period in Indian philosophy. And his Advaita is not the same as, as Shankara's. I mean, obviously there's a kind of broad similarity in metaphysical commitments, but there are also relevant differences. And that's true of all the traditions. Every single tradition within Vedanta has evolved. And I wanted the handbook to reflect that evolution. So that's the second feature. So the first one is that it covers the whole range of Vedanta traditions. The second feature of this handbook is that it, it also tries to track, to a certain extent, the historical evolution and development of different Vedantic traditions. Um, the, the third unique feature is um, many scholars are aware, have read many handbooks and companions, whether they're Cambridge companions or Bloomsbury handbooks or um, Black, Wiley Blackwell has a huge number of these kind of Blackwell companions. right? Um, but each, I, I would say that you know, there are different ways of thinking of the ontology of the handbook or of the companion. Um, And one way of conceiving the handbook is that it should should give an expert introduction to a certain topic. But my ambitions were a bit uh, grander in a way. So um, what I envisioned for this handbook is that it would provide introductory overviews to different topics within Vedanta, but that in addition, I wanted each contributor, I wanted every chapter to make an original contribution to the existing scholarship. Uh, so that's a distinctive feature. I mean, you'll, what you'll find is that every single chapter, more or less, is making an original argument, a controversial argument uh, that's taking a stand on a particular issue or on a particular question. So just to give you one example, for instance, um, Clara Headling, her chapter is um, discussing the concept of jivanmukti, liberation while living in the human body, in two philosophical traditions. So one of them is Advaita Vedanta and the other is uh, Shaiva non-dualism, otherwise known as Kashmiri Shaivism. Um, so she's making a very interesting argument there that Advaita Vedanta, even though explicitly this tradition fully embraces the concept of liberation while living, it has difficulty at the philosophical level in justifying that concept. Whereas Shaiva non dualism, because it affirms the reality of this world as a manifestation of Shiva and it accepts the reality of Shakti, it's in a much Better philosophical position to justify the doctrine of movie. So that's obviously a controversial original argument. She provides, you know, evidence in favor of it. So that's one example. But every chapter does that. There's a kind of original dimension to each chapter, which I think uh, adds value to the handbook. and I hope it does. Um, and the fourth key feature is the cro- what I would call the cross philosophical and cross cultural dimensions of the handbook. So um, you'll find this throughout the handbook that there are a number of chapters which compare one or more Vedantic traditions with other philosophical schools, for instance, Nyaya. So Michael Williams um, discusses Mato Vedanta in relation to Nyaya in his chapter um, on Vyasatipta, who was a later Mato thinker. Um, Ethan Mills also discusses Nyaya in relation to Sri Harsha's Advaita Vedanta. Francis Clooney, a professor at Harvard, um, his chapter compares Mimamsa with Advaita Vedanta. So that's that, those will be kind of uh, chapters that venture into cross-philosophical territory. But the whole last part, part five of the handbook, is devoted to what I call cross-cultural explorations. And there, it's even more kind of... Um, uh, do in a way, I mean, from a scholarly standpoint, uh, what all three of the scholars in part five are doing. So the three scholars are Anand vaidya Ethan Mills, and Arindam Chakraborty. All three of them are taking a cross-cultural methodological approach to Vedanta and comparing. So for instance, Anand Vaidya is focusing on this very, very interesting contemporary topic within the philosophy of mind called panpsychism. The view that consciousness is everywhere, and looking both at contemporary analytic philosophers of mind and what they have to say on the issue, and then comparing their ideas with ideas found in traditions of Vedanta, including Advaita Vedanta, uh, Vishita Advaita Vedanta, and Sri Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta. Um, and Ethan Mills is looking at uh, Sri Harsha's Kananakandakadhyaya, he's an Advaita Vedantin. He's looking at how um, he's thinking, uh, is in dialogue, or he tries to bring his thinking in a dialogue with contemporary skepticism, contemporary views on skeptic, skepticism. Um, and Arindam Chakraborty is writing on a number of modern Vedantins, especially Swami Vivekananda and um, K.C. Bhattacharya, also in relation to contemporary analytic philosophy, and even through the looking glass. So, I mean, um, I, this handbook is really wide-ranging, and I think that's one of the strengths of the handbook.
0: I was very interested to see your own contribution, because at one point in my undergrad, I took a course called Freud on Religion, and we looked at, I think, uh, Civilization and its Discontents and of Illusion. This was you know, eons ago. Um, and uh, I was really fascinated with the exchange between um, Freud and Romain Roland. I actually Well, oh, I'm glad f-
1: that you actually were familiar with it, because a lot of
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, I, no, I, was just, I, I didn't know about it, but I was so taken by it that I did my final assignment on it. And... <laughs> Strangely enough, I structured the, the essay as a conversation between the two, as it would be conversation between the two. But I'm I'm really fascinated by that figure, and I think I think the exchange between the two is something worth mentioning in terms of any of the themes of, of Vedanta, of studying Vedanta, of Vedanta in the West. And so, maybe you can tell us uh, uh, um, about your contribution. Well, what happened between these two men, and what are you looking at, and what are you arguing in your in your chapter?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, Romain Roland uh, was, of course, a, a celebrated French writer, novelist, um, so celebrated that he eventually won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And so Sigmund Freud deeply admired him, but he also respected him as a, as a human being. I mean, he was famous for his um, taking a moral stand on a number of important social issues at the time. Um, so there's a deep admiration and respect in both, on both sides. So that's how they they kind of start an, ex- an exchange. And at the same time that he started... Um, getting into this epistolary kind of conversation with Freud. Romain Roland had written, had just written his biographies on Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. So he wrote a book called, in in French, both the books were written in French, La Vie de Ramakrishna, The Life of Sri Ramakrishna, and um, a, a, a biography of Vivekananda as well. And not just a biography, but also kind of a reflection on many of his Vedantic ideas. And so what happened is in his, um, one of his letters to Freud while, while he was writing these biographies or maybe just after he'd written them, I think, um, he wrote to Freud, you know, I just read your book, Future of an Illusion, right? This book where Freud is kind of staunchly atheistic and attacking um, the idea of God and the idea of experiencing God in some kind of mystical state. And um, what Roland says is, you know, I, I find your criticisms of dogmatic religion quite persuasive, but I don't think you're being fair, I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't think you're being fair to um, those who ground their religiosity in their own direct experience, in what he calls the oceanic feeling. Um, And so he opens this can of worms by introducing the idea of oceanic feeling, and also pushed Freud's buttons because in in a letter of response, Freud gets a little irritated and he says, in a, in a kind of a condescending way, he says, oh, you know I, I know all about that oceanic feeling. And he explains it in terms of, of a kind of infantile regression, as a regression to an infantile state, where, where uh, you know, the baby feels at one with the mother in the, in the state of the womb. Um, and Roland, uh, because he wasn't shy and he didn't stand, you know, stand down from a fight, he shot back by appealing to the examples of both Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, who he had just written about, and he actually sent the biographies to Freud to read. And he said, please read these, and I hope these books will convince you that mystical experience is not some kind of um, you know, some immature state or um, a state in uh, early infantile development, but a very mature state of a very high spiritual development. Um, And uh, the debate went on like that, but Freud didn't budge. And Roland made some really interesting critical remarks, almost, I mean, basically turning the tables on psychoanalysts like Freud, where, where psychoanalysts like Freud and Ferdinand Mohail, who was a, a French uh, scholar, he, he wrote his whole doctoral dissertation during a kind of psychoanalytic study of many famous mystics, especially in Christian traditions. Roland had read that, that uh, dissertation of Mohail's. And in the appendix to his biography of Vivekananda, he attacks it. He attacks that psychoanalytic mysticism from a Vedantic standpoint and argues that actually psychoanalysts have a lot to learn from mystics, not the other way around. And so mystics don't need to be sort of diagnosed or kind of put on the couch by psychoanalysts, but it's actually psychoanalysts that... (laughs) Can be you know kind of more deeply analyzed by mystics in a number of ways. So that's kind of the, the dialectic that I um explore in my chapter. And you also asked about, well, what what's the original component? One of the original things is, I don't know if you're aware, there's a book published maybe um 10 or 15 years ago by William Parsons called The Enigma of the Oceanic Feeling. Um, the whole book is centered around this debate between Romain Roland and Sigmund Freud, but his approach is very different. And he the lesson that he takes from this debate is that what Roland is advocating is what he calls a mystical psychoanalysis. And he takes interestingly, it's not a term that Roland ever actually used, but he, he makes it seem as if it if it is. Um, and what ended up happening, I think, is that. There's one standard English translation of Roland's biographies of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. And there's a mistranslation of the French term, which which basically actually literally means mystical psychopathology. And it it was used in one very specific context in a footnote in Roland's biography of Ramakrishna, where he says, Ramakrishna was famous for transmitting spirituality through touch, just from like touching somebody's shoulder or chest he could give them some spiritual experience. And so he referred to that whole area of investigation as mystical psychopathology. I think what happened is that William Parsons um, took the English mistranslation of the, the original French mystical uh, psychophysiology and then turned this entire argument. The whole book is based on the idea that from Roland's kind of the precursor to many of the 20th century psychoanalytic efforts to um, take mysticism seriously, but still from a psychoanalytic standpoint. So sudir Kakar and a number of other people, he has a, a number of people in mind. And so what I argue in my, in my chapter is actually that Roulan is doing something much more radical than that. He's not favoring a non-reductive psychoanalytic approach to mystical experience, but he's actually critiquing psychoanalysis from a mystical standpoint. So that's the kind of original um, critical thrust of my chapter.
0: So rather than the mystic needing to be on the couch of the psychoanalyst, the psychoanalyst needs to um, get their feet wet in the oceanic. That's so, right. That's right. <laughs> that's um, 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 um. So, so um, may I ask you uh, about your path? I noticed that you're also, in addition to being a scholar yeah. and an academic, you're also a renunciant. You're a swami. Is that correct? Would you mind yes. telling us a little bit about that path?
1: <sighs> sure. Yeah. I mean... Uh... I don't know if you could tell from my accent, but I'm actually from the U.S. So I was born and raised in
0: Boston. Welcome to the global village. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and educated also in the West, uh, Berkeley, Oxford and Germany, um, but just sort of within one semester of my PhD program at Berkeley, I kind of had this con- this conviction that came to me. It wasn't like I met some inspired. You're called. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to explain these things. Of course, a Hindu will say that you know, I had some scholars from a previous life. but in any case, whatever the reason, um, I just felt, you know, I'm good, I need to finish my PhD. and then I need to move to India and become a sannyasi.
0: That's just, I was just. It was very clear in my mind, that I didn't have doubts about it. nothing but a calling from the inner world <laughs> or the inner yeah. life could possibly yeah. I mean, possess yeah, someone I mean, to do that. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I did read the Bhagavad Gita um, at the time. I didn't know Sanskrit. I learned Sanskrit only in my fifth year of my PhD program, Berkeley. But um, before that, I read Sri Aurobindo's English translation of the Gita, and I just there's something that deeply resonated with me. This idea that I should renounce lust and greed for the aim of uh attaining the highest goal of life. Um uh, and attaining a certain transcendental peace.
0: And uh, so mm-hmm. and so you so so you um you are officially uh sannyasi affiliated with Ramakrishna mission, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I'll share that around the age of I think twenty three 24-ish, something popped in my being, and I very seriously considered renouncing. <laughs> that was the plan, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. I shaved my head and everything. And then uh, I found my teacher around that time and and realized that uh, uh, there was a different path for me. Someone has to do podcasts, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. One of us has a, a, uh, a swadharma. As a, but the, okay. the, the the question, and also, and also, just for those listening, there 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 are various philosophies, whether through Nishkam Karma Yoga or mm-hmm. um, maybe a more tantric ideology, where mm-hmm. where um, there are those who who also would like to, as you say, combat lust and greed, etc., uh, and yet not have the courage to renounce, for example, or the opportunity and maybe working that out in the world. What I'm very interested in is, oh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier. You know, I was talking to undergrads the other day, and Oh no! It was on this podcast actually, up on white utopias, and and religion in the West almost always means Abrahamic religion. It it means a specific kind of religion, and and the deconstruction of religion is the go-to place isn't the oceanic or the mystical experience. And so there are a lot of people who identify as spiritual but not religious, but they'll engage in their Buddhist practices. And so there's this interesting, um, there's this interesting presentation understanding of what religion is in the West. Yeah, I think
1: that's right. And I think I think you're right. That I mean. In- I think that's especially true in the u.s where religion has an especially bad name um it's almost like religion means those crazy fundamentalists who are into kind of speaking in tongues and getting into emotional disease yeah.
0: and you know the word the word religion means you're in part of the cult of yahweh essentially like that's, that's right. what it means that's in the west right. yeah exactly exactly um i think that's um, the U.S. But, you know what i would like to ask you about part of the reason why i asked you to sh- to talk a little bit about your path is because you know even in the publication in the um uh, in your description, you also use your initiate designation, Swami Medhananda. And so part of what i like to hear about is, um, you know, we often talk about this this etic versus emic paradigm and, and scholarship versus practice. And obviously anybody who's listening to this podcast is well aware that there are many who can do both. Um, perhaps even the host of the podcast, Winkwinkanajana. Mean, but um, can you tell us a bit about that tension or what is it like for you being a practitioner, Possibly, or perhaps having an experiential uh, dimension of Vedanta, and then also being a scholar who is trying to understand it intellectually, and, and and even trying to sort of curate various voices for this handbook. Is there attention there, or is that just my presumption?
1: It's a great question. You know, in my mind, uh, I, I I see it less as attention and more as a fruitful source of kind of energy and. Um, it brings a kind it of attention. It create attention, also a kind of urgency to the work I'm doing. So, just to give you an example. So, for instance, before I moved to, I moved to India, I got my PhD in 2009 in May. Um, and three months later in September, I flew out to India. I got a one way ticket. And I just came to India. Um, but before that, I was initiated into the Ramakrishna tradition by receiving a mantra from a very senior Swami who was uh, the head of this, our Hollywood ashram. His name is Swami Swahananda. And he initiated me. And then I told him, I'm going to go to India and become a monk there. And he said, OK, great. Then you can, you know, we have some colleges and there's a new university. You can teach at one of those places. And at the time, I was so disenchanted with academia that I told him, I said, you know, I'd rather sweep floors than do academic work. And I had this idea that, you know, my ego was bound up with my academic work. So, you know, the most spiritual path for me is just doing something completely non-academic. And he just laughed. I mean, with that wisdom that you get from being 90 years old, you know, he just kind of. That, all right, uh, you'll find your path.
0: The, the, the lotus needs the mud, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, amazingly, just with, I just, he was so kind of liberal. So he didn't say anything. But on my own, within a few months of being in India, I, I was just through different circumstances, I was invited to come to Vivekananda University, which is where I'm, I've been for 10 years. And the vice chancellor just said, you know what? Just come as our guest and stay for a week and see how you like it. When, when, when I stayed for that week, something just clicked, and I what what I felt was I said you know I thought to myself I said I have spent in my entire adult life deeply studying um, philosophy and literary theory and criticism, studying books and studying Sanskrit at Berkeley and German. Should I just throw that all away and you know is that was that all just a waste of time, or can I sort of harness that as a source of energy and actually kind of um, use that for a spiritual purpose? And then I thought, I'm in a unique position to do that. There's one thing about Indian culture especially is that most of the so-called brightest minds tend to go into science subjects. It's an unfortunate kind of empirical fact in India because in 10th grade, there's this this thing called Madhyamika. And if you do really well on the exam, your parents more or less force you to go into the (laughs) sciences. And even if you're not forced, it's kind of very prestigious. And so the best people tend to go in the sciences. Humanities get short-shifted in Indian culture. So I, because I was educated in the West, there was, I didn't have that kind of bias, except my dad really was kind of pushing me into the sciences, but I ignored him, fortunately. So I'm I a rebel studying, too. Yeah. So I so I studied philosophy, and then I thought to myself, you know what? Because I studied philosophy, I can easily, I can, I can do my academic research on – Ramakrishna on Vivekananda on An Vedanta. What 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 how what's a better use of my time than you know thinking deeply about my own spiritual tradition and in a in a rigorous way or as rigorous way as I can? And so to me, from the very beginning, I actually saw this emic edict thing as a kind of advantage, you know, that I have a kind of insider's understanding of the tradition.
0: You have a with, dual citizenship.
1: That's right, but with scholarly training and background to kind of try to make it rigorous. And you know, another thing is. I, I'm glad that you brought up this insider-outsider emic edict thing, because I'm actually, I, I just finished a book on, oh, it, the tentative title is Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. And I'm thinking of adding a paragraph at the very end, exactly addressing this emic-edic issue, because if you read some of the scholarship on Vivekananda and on Ramakrishna, there are a lot of, especially Western scholars, not just Western scholars, it's not fair. I mean, even a lot of uh, Indian scholars, they bring up this issue and they say that, you know, these... Ramakrishna monks, they only write hagiography. They use the word hagiography. They say, you know, when they talk about Vekananda and Ramakrishna, they're also so biased. They only, just, they, they only praise them. You know, there's no critical approach. There's, they don't adopt a scholarly approach. But we outsiders, we scholars, you know, we're rigorous. We see things objectively. So this idea that the, the edict approach is somehow objective, um, third-person unbiased um, in that the, the insider approach is hopelessly subjective or biased or hagiographic. And so I was thinking of adding a paragraph to the very end of my introduction saying, you know, where are you going to place me in that? You know, Am I, emic, am, I am I emic or am I both? And is that a problem or is that a virtue or is that potentially from a hermeneutic standpoint? Um, and so I, I want to say that that actually, you know, because Gadamer, for instance, um, he has this idea of the fusion of horizons so when you're interpreting a text, you want to try to achieve this kind of fusion of horizons between your own horizon and the horizon of the author of the text or the text itself. And you know, in order to achieve that fusion, one really essential thing is inhabiting the sensibility of the author or the kind of uh, worldview embodied in that text. So there, the insider has a unique advantage, right? At the same time, another thing that Gadamer emphasizes is the need to kind of, for, for the interpreter of a text to try to bracket, to become aware of, and to the, to the fullest extent as possible, and to bracket his or her own biases, preconceptions, presuppositions that might distort his or her understanding of the text. So what he called so uh prejudgments, that would be the literal translation. Some people translate it as prejudices. Um, so there you can, you can bring, you know, because I have scholarly background, I also try to kind of bring my scholarly uh, tools to bear to m- become, try to become self-aware and to avoid the kind of um, the dangers of eisegesis or, you know, imposing my own views onto the text. So I think it's there's a, a real value in combining the
0: e-mechanetic approaches. Well, it's sort of, I I feel that... Me personally, my, 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 my life, my, my, my career, most of my enterprises walk that line between these two worlds. And so uh, for me, the, the teaching, uh, the vast majority of the teaching and thinking I do about Hinduism, Hindu studies, is in the space of this podcast where it's overarchingly an ethic perspective. Because in my view, as citizens of the globe, the ethic perspective is the only one whereby we can all stand together. to to, to examine something, that doesn't mean that one can also have a direct experience or an emic perspective. And and I think that uh, if you you do it well, those two perspectives very richly, richly inform each other, such that even when teaching undergrads, the, the, the stories and the anecdotes and the data that comes from the students themselves and their own experience that we can now all look at. The outside only enriches our perspective, um, and also it's a different enterprise, right? The, the, the production of empirical knowledge is a very different enterprise from the ascent of consciousness or, or, or the pursuit of moksha, or however one wants to. That's
1: absolutely right. And I, I would just add that you know there's a lot of controversy about certain um, scholarly approaches to um, Hindu figures and Hindu texts. So you know some of the mm. scholars that are controversial or are stirring up controversy are Wendy Doniger. Uh, Sheldon Pollock and others. Um, I, uh, Jeffrey Kripal wrote a book called "Golly's Child, claiming that um, Shurankris' mystical experiences were rooted in a certain kind of homoeroticism or repressed homosexuality um, or homoeroticism. And there was an uproar about that, that book, for instance. And um, part of the pushback he was getting was about how he... he because he was bringing to bear a Freudian psychoanalytic framework on a Hindu nineteenth-century Hindu saint mystic, there's this question of: I mean, is that just you know is that is that kind of a priori me- methodology itself falsifying the object of study? Um, so again, I would say another potential advantage of having an emic understanding of a tradition is that y- you can avoid those the dangers of kind of Bring in frameworks that are completely foreign to the object of, of your study. You know, um, I'm not necessarily saying that he is guilty of that, but I- I'm using him as just an example of, of one of the
0: potential dangers. May I share my favorite analogy, analog to the situation? Yeah. Uh, so for me, well, there's two or three. Well, there's three that I use that I that I recycle in various settings. But for the sake of 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 This, my favorite analogy is of uh, food, where there are nutritionists and there are chefs, right? And uh, in preparing food, one needs to understand nutrition and and macronutrients and and something about biology or the needs of human beings in an empirical objective way, but that's not the taste of food. So we can talk about food and and, and certainly the chef has to be cognizant of what's happening. Uh, but the taste of the food is something very personal, and subjective, and one can't understand what vanilla tastes like unless one has tasted it. Now, obviously we are preparing food and we're talking about nutrition. That's what we can do together, especially in public education um, public discourse. However, we can't simply reduce people's experience of food to something uh, some for something hopelessly subjective or, or, or hallucinated or or conjured in some way right there's this is this is the tension I mean that's kind of my favorite analogy for it.
1: That's a great way to put it yeah thanks what um, what do you hope
0: most that people will take away uh, from using this handbook?
1: Again, a good question I, I maybe I, yeah I mean I want to leave that open I guess but um one of the things I really think that it's it's a shame that for too long, both in India and in the West, both in the popular imagination and even among some scholars, especially in scholars outside of specialist fields, like outside of religious studies and Indian philosophy. All too often, Vedanta is equated with Advaita Vedanta. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways of this handbook should be that that's a a huge mistake. Um, The tradition of Vedanta is incredibly philosophically rich, but also incredibly diverse and internally variegated. Um, and we're doing an injustice to the tradition when we reduce it to Abdulakta like Vedanta. Uh,
0: so that's one of the main takeaways. Um, there are a number of other ones, but yeah. i to make a quick footnote in my experience. So most of my work is on uh, a narrative, Sanskrit narrative. So uh, the Devi Mahatmya, the epics, the Puranas. Um, philosophy, of course, informs my understanding of Hinduism, even much of my own wheelings and dealings. Um, but I hadn't really taught in the space of philosophy, taught students learning philosophy until um, the OCHS fairly recently, and you know I can sort of reflect back that I've noticed that that from for many students, many learners, particularly from a Western perspective, that is the that's the apex of of of, of, of really Vedanta, of Vedanta of Hinduism of India. It's like Advaita Vedanta is the crown jewel of creation, um, and it, it's been. Um, for many of them, they're very open to look at other traditions. And for a couple of them. it's it's. I've noticed that no matter what else we look at, it's being compared to Vita Vedanta. Okay. It's internalized somehow. It's It, it fascinates me, actually.
1: It's <laughs> deeply ingrained. And, you know, there are different reasons for that. If you looked at the introduction of my handbook, I, I, I give some of the historical reasons for that. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually. If you look at the history of scholarship on Vedanta, what you find is that the earliest scholars of Vedanta in India were... Western, especially Christian missionaries. And so it was part of their strategic agenda to do this kind of conflation. So they would conflate Hinduism as such with Vedanta and then equate Vedanta with Advaita Vedanta. Why? So for instance, um, a a Jesuit father from many centuries ago, one of the first uh, missionaries in India, he was also a great scholar of Sanskrit and Vedanta. And he he, he said that Hinduism, teaches the Luciferian doctrine that we are one with God, which is just sheer blasphemy. And, you know, we need to educate these benighted Hindus about the truth that they're, you know, they're being deluded and deceived by this false path and that we Christians have the duty to correct them and to teach them the saving religion of Christianity. So one of the reasons is it's very interesting and obviously kind of problematic, ideological reason for you know the emphasis of Advaita Vedanta. They're equating Hinduism with Advaita Vedanta in order to discredit it and to justify Christian missionary efforts. Now fast forwarding to contemporary times, I think that there's another very, very different reason why Advaita Vedanta is, is extraordinarily popular throughout the world, especially in the West. Many people like saying that Advaita Vedanta, unlike theistic religions, is somehow more rational and I, I think that's, you know, questionable and it's worth debating. Yeah. Right? I certainly don't think it should be taken for granted, but it is a sort of common assumption. I think.
0: And also the, the um, you know, let's just shear away karma and rebirth. And then we have this, uh, this, this bot religion that we can, you know, use for computer programming or vice versa. That's right. But, that's right. It's
1: good. Yeah. The same thing that's the same thing is true of yoga, the way that the West has co-opted yoga. And, you know, some monks in our order, they jokingly say they call it. Want they? of course, taught Ashtanga yoga, which is the 8 limb yoga, starting with Yama and Yama, so ethical practices and Brahmacharya celibacy. And he says the West teaches yoga as if it's Shashtanga yoga, it's the sixth limb yoga. They just drop out the ethical and spiritual practices, and you end up with just asanas. Or they really just focus on a third anga, which is just asanas, right? But uh, Eka- thinking Ekanga yoga. <laughs> yeah, Ekanga Yoga. And then in Buddhism, there's a very inter- I mean, there are lots of interesting debates about. Um, whether it's legitimate and fruitful or whether you're not doing a kind of injustice to Buddhism by kind of stripping away what many Western scholars think are the more problematic metaphysical elements of Buddhism, like the belief in devatas, so the belief in minor deities, the belief in rebirth, and just take, you know, the core of the four noble truths and kind of, so Stephen Batchelor is one of many scholars who kind of advocate that kind of separation. But yeah, I, as, I, as I think you do, I think
0: agree with that. That's it's not. so... It's so rich. It's so there, there are a variety of individuals who are drawn to other paths who may have sort of more of a buffet and a prefix sort of a relationship to, to paths and um, you know one can't throw the baby out with the bathwater but it's it's just so fascinating to me the um, it's really difficult to navigate the line between etic and emic and and one thing I say when I talk to people is that it's it's very it's relatively easy to be uh, Critical and skeptical, and then sort of in that safe, solely rational mode. And then for some, it's it's it seems relatively uh, easy or intuitive to just dismiss that, and everything is possible, and everything is believable, and you know you know the grandeur of God is everywhere, and all we need is love. Yay, hurrah! And <laughs> really, you know, both of these extremes seem so. Um, uh, those are extremes, but they don't really accord with life, where obviously science is the arbiter of the outer world, clearly. Obviously empiricism is of tremendous value, but obviously humans have so much going on to them that we can't begin to begin to understand. And clearly um, the world's religions uh, is a rich repository of experiences that, let's um, say, Romain Roland is talking about. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, if you don't mind, I, I don't want to plug my own contributions to the handbook. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, well, uh, just so you know, plugging the handbook is why you're here. So I yeah, don't no, mind. Yeah, that's true. But <laughs> I, I, I
1: don't about plugging mine, especially. But uh, I, but let
0: me absolve you. I used yeah. to be a Catholic priest in a previous life. Let me absolve you of your Catholic guilt. You're good. Thank Go. You. Uh,
1: well, let me just briefly mention, though, that my the other chapter that I, I contributed to the handbook is on free those interpretation of the Isha Openship. and the reason why I bring it up in this context is that he is, I think, one of the best examples of this kind of, of this really subtle and creative thinker who straddles the border between the emic and the edict. Um, and I discussed that in the first or second section of that chapter where I, I talk about how he's, he, he has a, a, uh, he wrote an essay called The Interpretation of Scripture where he says we need to combine uh, a kind of philological slash scholarly approach to these scriptures, which focuses on the etymological meaning of words, historical context, all, all the kind of, you know, phil- philological tools that modern scholars use and bring to bear on texts, while also combining that philological approach with a spiritual receptivity to these scriptures. Um, and ideally, and this is something that he was in a unique position to do because he was a yogi and also, you know, not just a scholar, but a yogi, but also try to inhabit the text from a spiritual standpoint and to try to share the spiritual experiences that are conveyed in, in those Upanishads or in the, in the Gita. Um, so he's a very good example of, of somebody who, who really uh, straddles that, that middle middle ground
0: between these two extremes. And, and uh, I think the, uh, the key there. Uh, is that to, to, to use the analogy of the nutritionist and the chef Nutritionists may be excellent at what they do but not have a great palate at all um, the, 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 like uh, how, how do the tone deaf uh, orchestrate music maybe alongside music theory how did the prepubescent you know, understand something orgasmic for example like how it's beyond the realm of the experience of some people to have these experiences and so it's easily dismissed or explained away or reduced and one of my favorite kind of Sound bites or catchphrases is, is rigor without like reductionism. Like you can be rigorous, yeah, and still leave space for yeah. something that's that, that,
1: that's a that, nice three-word kind of um, explanation of my ideal, actually. As I call it, yeah,
0: rigor. Without Great. Freedom. So you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, rigor without reductionism, trademark. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's 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 no no no. You won't steal it. It's my service. It's my seva. It's, this is what we're doing. This is what we need to do. This is right. this is the vision of, of of Hindu studies. This is this is uh, education. This you know when undergrads come to, to to classes, of course they understand for the most part that it's not priest training or a practice, but yeah. but but the reductionism is what just really kind of messes with a lot of them. They understand that this is an academic paradigm. Yes, yeah. but I, my sense is many. Learners, continuing studies and 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 um, undergrads, they're really put off by the reductionism mm-hmm. because they understand that this stuff means much more to the people that they know and that they're related to and that they see than can begin to be conveyed in sort of a... Solely historical approach, for example, right? So there's this disjunction yeah, there. No,
1: I mean, you know, this is good because it's also bringing, I mean, i mean, this, as I said, a kind of unique position because I'm mean, in, in an order, a monastic order. Um, and at the same time, I'm a practicing scholar. And, you know, I actually share the frustrations of both sides in a way, which is interesting, right? So on the one hand, I deeply sympathize with and I agree with the criticisms of those kind of purely edict scholars who kind of poo poo insiders and, um, yeah, bring to bear all sorts of psychoanalytic ideas on, on, on the Hindu figures. But at the same time, I sometimes, you know, when I'm interacting with monks, I sometimes get frustrated with the lack of rigor and we're kind of sometimes too quick to kind of uncritically um, accept certain stories about the lives of Ramakrishna Krishna, or Vikananda, or their teachings. And, you know, um, so I push back on both sides in a way. And, I, and, you know, I think that rigor without reduction is really great way to put what I'm really striving for, which I think is a good corrective to both sides. On the one hand, this kind of tendency among some insiders to, um, toward kind of uncritical um, faith or just kind of, you know, um, not thinking deeply enough or rigorously enough. And on the other hand, the historicists who kind of um, lack that fusion of horizons aspect of their hermeneutic approach um, so, the middle ground, well,
0: I think, is what- we've 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 uh, our paths thus far have landed on, um, on 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 opposite ends of of, of the sannyasi uh, line. However, there's a great deal of cross pollination there, and that um some may describe some of my qualities as a and certainly uh you are a bona fide scholar. Um, I'm, 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 so it's it's it's, it's interesting because when I'm among practitioners, you know, my job is to help teach something, you know, like empirical and like, what can you know about the text, you know, how is the text composed or what's, uh, what epoch of Hinduism is this text emerging from, what's it trying to accomplish? And then um, <laughs> among scholars, it's, you know, you push back a little bit the other way, if they're a little bit on the reductionist side, like how, how do we know, like how, uh, it's convenient to take for its approach, it really is, your critical thinking likes it a lot. It doesn't accord with so many of the people you meet what they what they report, what they experience. It doesn't accord with one's own experiences. And so where's the line? And it's it's a constant dialectic. But I for I me mean, I think it's important to always maintain and um always maintain the rigor in that we're always teaching in the public space from an etic paradigm without an agenda, whatever religion we're teaching. But we can't make claims on what we can't know to be true or not true absolutely. You know, uh, we, 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 there, there certainly are things that can't be measured by science, clearly, uh, yeah. related to the human experience. And, and we need to be very honest about that. And is not the project of the humanities. When did the humanities become hard science, right? Mm-hmm. And that's very crucial. Enough of my pontificating for one day. Is there anything else about the book you wanted to touch on before, um, before we close for today?
1: No, I think that uh, we covered most of the bases. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time.
0: I'm well, glad you enjoyed it. So for those of you listening, we have been talking about the brand new Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta. We've been talking with its editor, um, Ayon Maharaj, who also is uh, known as Swami Medananda. And it is by virtue of his dual citizenship that we've had this uh, fascinating exchange. Um, until next time, uh, stay safe. Uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the interplay between insider and outsider perspectives.
1: Thanks a lot. There was a lot of-